Thanks, Josh. Hey, I want you to take a look while I'm getting this into place at this, um, this graphic that's up on screen. This is uh, what we've been using for the, our marketing, our promotion of Learn, Be, Do, of the Grow Hour. And I want you to take a look at that tree, the roots and the leaves. And I just want to start by reading Psalm 1. Psalm 1, verse 1. Listen, it says, Happy are those who do not follow the advice of the wicked or take the path that sinners tread or sit in the seat of scoffers. But their delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law they meditate day and night. They are like trees planted by streams of water, which yield their fruit in its season, and their leaves do not wither. And I want to just couple that with a vision from Ezekiel, from, uh, we have it in Scripture in the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel had this vision of the sanctuary of God, and we're not really sure what place or time it's in, but in this vision, he speaks of the sanctuary of God, and from this sanctuary, there's a river that flows, and on the banks of that river, there are trees, and these trees never lose their leaves. And it says that these leaves that are fed by the water from the streams of the sanctuary of God have a purpose. Does anybody know what it says the purpose is? They're for the healing of the nations. These leaves are for the healing of the nations. And my friends, that's what I hope will happen out of our sanctuary today. I, um, I don't know if it's a confession. I don't know if it's a prayer. I. Uh, I had done a lot of work on the sermon for today, and months ago we planned that we would have this series on Learn, Be, Do, and I would come up and tell you a little bit about what we've been doing in Learn so far this summer and open the window and what we hope to do and learn in the fall. And when I woke up yesterday morning and I had just a little bit of work left to do, I had about three quarters of the sermon done. I just needed to tweak it a little bit. I needed to run it past my husband, get the Bob Tilly seal of approval, and, uh, you know, say, what did you think? Did that work? And get some feedback. And, uh, and so I was working away in my study, and my sweet husband came in and he says, "Hun, you know what's going on out there? Now, I was typing and working on the sermon, and I had my phone sitting here, and my phone I had on vibrate so that I wouldn't be distracted. I was trying not to be distracted so that I could focus on the sermon, but it kept, I have headline news on my phone, and so it kept lighting up, lighting up, lighting up, and I would glance, and it was like, oh, there's something about Charlottesville. Oh, wow, there's somebody that's been killed. So when Bob came in and said, do you know what's going on out there? I'm like, this is so weird that he's like coming in to interrupt, because he never interrupts when I'm focused on trying to finish a sermon on Saturday. And, and so I said, you mean the Charlottesville thing? And he goes, well, yes, but there's a national outcry for white evangelicals to speak about it in the pulpit tomorrow. And I was like, huh, oh, okay, well, thank you. I appreciate you letting me know. And... <laughs> And, and I went back to work trying to focus on the sermon that I was planning, that Drew had planned, that, that we had planned. And the more that I tried to focus on the sermon and the more this headlines kept coming in, now, 
two state troopers killed in a helicopter accident as a result of being there, I recognized that in trying to stay focused on the sermon that I was having to shut out the world, and that finally convicted me that I was doing exactly what I've been teaching in Learn not to do. And so at six o'clock last night, I took that sermon. It looks like this. It was nice, it was typed, it was pretty much ready to go. And I put it away. And I said, Lord, I don't know what you want me to say to your church tomorrow. And so I need you. I need you because I think that we're supposed to speak into a silence. Because that's what the church does, that's what Christians do. We are supposed to speak where there's been silence. From the time that Jesus was laid in the grave and death said, finally, it's quiet. From the moment that Jesus blasted out of that, we speak into silence. And if there's been a place, since there has been a place, that the church has not spoken well, it's time. It's time that we speak clearly and that we call ourselves to who we are. It's no light thing to step into the pulpit of Bel Air Presbyterian Church with a 60, going on 61 year history. The weight of that is, and I don't mean this in a bad way, it's a responsibility. I have a responsibility to you, and that's the word that God keep giving, kept giving me, is there's a responsibility. And Bel Air, this church has an incredibly unique distinction, one of a handful of churches in America. We are a church where the 40th president of the United States sat right there and worshiped in our midst. And here's just a little fact that somebody pointed out to me, one of the, the ushers that, uh, that used to seat Ronald Reagan, and they put him right there, right where the overhang is, because that was the most defensible position. So right back, if you're like right underneath that, you're sitting where President Reagan sat. Uh, and when you look up, you'll notice, if you can see it from wherever you are, there's like little plexiglass underneath two vents. Well, this usher told me that they had to put plexiglass in there because Nancy Reagan used to get very cold. She was sitting right underneath the vent. But they couldn't move the Reagans because that's where the Secret Service wanted them. That was the most defensible position. And so we changed the church so that the Reagans could worship in safety in truth, with us. And these are the words of Ronald Reagan. He said, there are no easy answers, but there are simple answers. And we must have the courage to do what is morally right. And one of the first acts of courage is to speak. And so, I feel that God is asking me to speak, and my prayer is that I have his words for our church, not mine. And folks, anybody that's scared that I'm gonna get political, I'm not gonna get political. I don't wanna get political, but I do wanna get biblical. 
and I want to hold up what's happening in the world in light of this. And I want us to look at it and say, so what are we going to do? I am... I'm not a historian, and I'm not an anthropologist, and I'm not a politician, so I have just my own thoughts and experiences to share with you today. And so I, I'm just working out of that, my own experiences, and, and as I was asking God to just help me with this, I remembered when I was first in L.A., uh, I was working at an independent production company, and uh, we had just made a move to Universal, so it was about 1989, 90, somewhere in there. And the CEO, the owner of the company, had a home, very nice home in the Pacific Palisades, and there was a, a producer's assistant, a PA, whose job it was to drive the dailies, the things that we had shot that day, out from Universal to Pacific Palisades and take them so that our uh, owner of the company could see them and give his feedback. So this wonderful young guy named Kevin was that PA. He was an, an African-American man. He dressed really sharp, pleated pants, always looked really nice. He drove a beater of a car. Now, I say that in love because my husband drives a beater of a car. And, uh, and it, it's no judgment, right? It's just some people love junky old cars, and, I and my, my son loves junky cars, so you know what? God bless you guys, and, and it's okay to drive them, right? You should be able to drive a junky car anywhere you need to go in safety, right? So Kevin left the office one day and was gone for a couple of hours, and he came back late in the day, and this is what I remember, is he came into my office and he sat down in one of the big armchairs, which he never does. He was always working, and he sat down in a big armchair, and he looked sick. And I, I said, Kevin, are you okay? And his bottom lip started trembling. And he said, um, I got pulled over in the Palisades. And I'm like, oh, man, I used to get pulled over all the time, too. It's horrible. Did they give you a ticket? He goes, no, I, I hadn't done anything wrong. But um, they pulled me over. That was a, not the police, it was a security guy in that neighborhood, neighborhood security guy. And they pulled him over and had him get out of the car and had him lay spread eagle on the pavement. And by now he's got tears rolling down his face and he's shaking. That was his job to be in that neighborhood but spread eagle on the asphalt in his nice, clean clothes. Such humiliation. He was told that he shouldn't be there. He didn't have a nice enough car, and he's black, and he shouldn't be there. And when he was sitting in my office telling me this, and he must have been 26, and I must have been 26, I didn't know what to say. So all I could say was, I'm so sorry. You can stay in my office as long as you need. You can just sit right here. Can I get you some water? And that was all I could think of. And now looking back on when I was 26, I think about that and God brought it to my mind last night and I wonder, why didn't I do more? What if I had done more then? Would we be where we are now? 
And so I wonder, what should I do now so that we can be someplace else soon? And that's what I bring to you, church. What should we do now so that we can be someplace else soon? When Martin Luther King Jr. was leading the civil rights movement in, in America, a peaceful movement, a man of God, he was actually stunned that there weren't more white Christians participating alongside with him. And you know, when they started and really got their group of activists together, if there were young men that came to be part of what, what Dr. King was doing, they would throw a punch at him. And if they have the impulse to punch back, Dr. King would say, you can't be on the front lines. There's another place, but it's not on the front lines. So they would put women and children on the front lines and most of the rest of America watched in front of their TV while they were having a TV dinner and saw women and children getting hit by fire hoses and beaten and bit by dogs. And it was then that white America, at least some of it, stepped forward and said, this is not their problem, this is our problem. We did not know. And things changed when white America stood side by side black America. And friends, we have to carve a different destiny. We have to wake up to what we're being asked to do. Martin Luther King Jr. actually said of Christians, he said, too many have been more cautious than courageous. And they have remained silent behind the anesthetizing security of stained glass windows. Well, friends, we at Bel Air, maybe providentially, we have a really clear view into this world. We can't choose to stay anesthetized here. Bel Air, do you know how much reach and influence you have in this world? Just by being in this city alone, we stand in line behind people that make $80 million movies, people that own CNN. We stand next to them. Why don't we speak the truth? We have people in this sanctuary who produce movies, who are in politics, who are lawyers. We have been given gifts by God that we have not deployed for the sake of His kingdom. Let's not be found silent. There's a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and here I go. I get to talk about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It is a good day. Come on, D, come on. This is an actual quote. Do you see, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, those of you who don't know him, you've just got to read, and I recommend The Cost of Discipleship. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a theologian that was alive and coming into young manhood in Germany, in Berlin, at the same time that Adolf Hitler was rising to power in creating a Nazi regime. 
And Bonhoeffer was a Christian. He was the youngest of eight children, had a twin sister. He was really the only one that had a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. His family was Lutheran. Many people in Germany were considered themselves Christian, but Bonhoeffer was the only one that really would say, I am a disciple of Jesus Christ. And, and as that disciple, he believed in certain Christian values, and pacifism was one of them, and pacifism was very high on the list. And for a long time, he would not join himself with the German resistance to work from within Germany to try and get rid of Adolf Hitler. But finally, he felt that he had to. And this is what he said to his sister in explaining why he needed to join the resistance within Nazi Germany. He said, and this is a literal quote, I have not changed this. If I see a madman driving a car into a group of innocent bystanders, then I can't, as a Christian, simply wait for the catastrophe. It's not enough to simply bandage the wounds of victims underneath the wheels of injustice. We are to drive a spoke into the wheel itself. Let's think about that. And suddenly it occurs to me that I get to talk about Summer Grow after all. Because this is exactly some of the stuff that we were talking about in the LEARN workshops. When we started planning for LEARN, and it was my joy to teach the first cycle, the Summer Grow, and, and I developed content about essentials that we can learn from Jesus. But it was all through the lens of Dietrich Bonhoeffer's theology. When I first encountered Dietrich Bonhoeffer's theology, it blew my mind, it changed my world, not only for the depth of his theology, but, but for the fact that it was lived out in a crucible of Nazi Germany, and that he applied it and lived by it every day at the time that he was theologizing, if that's a word. In Summer Grow, we looked at how to know a lot more about Jesus and a little bit more about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And when we enter the world of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, we enter the world of Nazi Germany. And we enter a world in which in Nazi Germany, the German Christian church was used by Adolf Hitler to propagate the hate speech, the idea that there should be ethnic cleansing, that there should be a white Aryan nation, that rose within the ranks of the church until it was so corrupt, so unrecognizable as anything that had to do anything with Jesus Christ, that there were people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Karl Barth and Martin Niemöller who said, we have to distance ourselves from that. And they wrote the Barman Declaration. It's in our book of confessions. The Barman Declaration talks about idolatry and how we start to worship something other than Jesus Christ. And they called out Germany. They called out Europe. They call out us today to say, are there any other gods that we have before the one God? Is there something else that we're serving? Is there something that's causing us to be cautious rather than courageous? And if there is, it's an idol, and it needs to go. And so, in this place where the church was this petri dish of evil and white supremacy, 
and Nazi flags, and, and oh yeah, the Jews were not okay there either. Plans to dismantle people. There was the confessing church that was begun by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and the theology that we have from Dietrich Bonhoeffer is the theology of a new day, of how to see beyond the evil and the wickedness that was in their midst then, and how to be part of the church that had to be the church of Jesus Christ, because without that church, the world is hopeless. And so it's his theology that I looked at to develop the LEARN workshops. So I get to tell you about the LEARN workshops this summer. We just started a new cycle this morning, so if you want to hear more about this, come next week. Come at 10 o'clock. We're in the Student Center for LEARN, and I would love to have you come early. It's just an hour early. You can come. So we started through Dietrich's, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's theology of looking at who is Christ. Because, you see, people had gotten off the mark about who is Jesus. They were being called to allegiance of the Fuhrer. So Bonhoeffer had to come back to the essentials of who is Jesus. And we have to answer that question for ourselves today. Bonhoeffer says that Jesus is the logos of God, the essence, the essential nature of God, the argument behind the logic of God is the incarnate Jesus Christ, the logos of God. And Bonhoeffer says that there is an, a little logos within each one of us, the essence of me. 24-7, there is something in me that's the logic of me, that I do what I want to do and say what I want to say and think what I want to think, and that's the little L logos of me, and each and every one of you has your little L logos of you. But when that little L logos meets the crazy big transcendent logos of God, that something will happen. And Bonhoeffer says, one of them will die. Either I recognize in God Almighty that I have to surrender my life to Him, or I will put Jesus on a cross. Because there can't be a compromise about who is in charge. And so the first thing that we did in this Learn workshop was to ask, who is Jesus Christ? And to get clear that He is the Word who speaks to me. The Word of God speaking to me, to you, to all of us. And once we get clear on who Jesus is, then we need to get clear on the fact that He has a claim on our life. That from the moment that I surrender my life to Him and say, Jesus, I'm going to give all of myself to you because you have laid down your life for me, at that moment, Jesus makes a claim upon my life. And Bonhoeffer uses the example of the rich young ruler who came to, to uh, Jesus and he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And it's pointed out that the guy wanted eternal life without the claim. He didn't want an encounter with Jesus, he just wanted eternal life. And so when Jesus says, you know the commandments, love God with your whole heart, mind, body, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, this guy has a comeback that says, well, who's my neighbor? Bonhoeffer says, how dare you ask that question? You are the neighbor. You are never not the neighbor. It doesn't matter who is standing here, whether it's Muslim, Jew, black, white, gay, straight, male, female, you are the neighbor. Because of Jesus Christ's claim on you, and He died for them, 
And so his claim is always operational, always follow Jesus every day and everywhere with everyone without a border, without us asking, is that my neighbor? And this is called costly grace. For too long, we thought that grace was cheap. Cost Jesus everything, hallelujah, didn't cost me anything. That's wrong Christianity. Grace should cost us because it costs Jesus everything. So once we get clear on who Jesus is and that he has a claim on my life and on your life, then the only thing that remains is to ask, what is my responsibility as a Christian in this world? And a better phrasing of that is, what is my responsibility as a disciple of Jesus Christ? What's his claim call me to? And Bonhoeffer and Bart used to get so frustrated with Christians at this time in Nazi Germany. They were discussing religion and philosophy, and they were debating while people were being herded and put into concentration camps. And we're talking about a religious debate. There was no more time to debate religion. There was only time to ask, where is Jesus Christ standing? Where do you see him? See, sometimes moral judgments can get hard. Sometimes our eyes can be blinded. When Bandelay read our scripture this morning, this road of Emmaus where two disciples of Jesus Christ were walking, they had spent time with Jesus. How could they not recognize him? But they walked along and they were so discouraged and despairing because of the events that were happening around them. And when Jesus says, what events? They're like, holy moly, weren't you listening to CNN yesterday? How can you have not heard what happened? Why aren't you upset about it too? And then Jesus says, how foolish you are that you didn't understand what the scriptures have to say about these events. Now, Jesus was talking particularly about what would happen to the Messiah. I don't want to exegete scripture incorrectly. Moses and the prophets, but all of Scripture has something to say about living in justice and living in love. And so this morning when we read that Scripture, I don't have one Scripture to give you today. I have all of Scripture to give you today to say, would you pray and ask Jesus Christ to open these Scriptures to you so that you recognize Him? So that when there's ever any cloudy moral judgment, when there's somebody seated in power, when there's your neighbors, when there's whoever saying, oh, that's not our problem, that's somebody else's problem, it happened halfway across the continent, that we can actually go, hang on a second, what does the Lord have to say about that? And that we don't stop and parse morality, but we ask ourselves, where is Jesus standing that we don't try to be found good. See, that's what Bonhoeffer recognized he was trying to do as a pacifist, that he was trying to justify himself, that the highest ideal that he could live out as a Christian was pacifism, and that ideal was stopping him from getting involved in the one thing he should be doing, which was shoving a spoke in the wheel. And one day his sister said to him, as he did not, had not gotten involved with the resistance, his sister went to him and she said, how is it with you Christians that you wash your hands 
and leave the dirty work to others. And Bonhoeffer said for him in that moment, the penny dropped. And he recognized that it didn't matter if he got dirty or if he got uncomfortable or if somebody blamed him for something that he had to do because he knew that God was calling him to that, that Jesus was standing with the Jews in the concentration camp. And I'm telling you, my friends, Jesus is standing with those who are suffering injustice and prejudice and hatred and violence in America today. So once we find out what is our responsibility in the world, then we need to go do something. But we have to do more than just do. We have to actually know the Bible. See, we have to be able to have our eyes open to recognize Jesus so that we don't run all over the place and and beat people up with the scriptures because that's been done too. That we don't show up as part of the protest and become part of the violence. How will anybody recognize Jesus there? We're not meant to just show up. We are meant to show up in his presence, in his love. There's a quote from a gentleman named Jamar Tisby who writes for the Washington Post, and this is what he wrote just yesterday. He says, we've been saying all along that a Charlottesville could easily happen. For years, the alt-right and white nationalists have employed the Bible to justify their racism in public online. But many Christians have never heard of the alt-right, much less been equipped to filter their messages biblically. That's our first responsibility in this world, to be able to filter messages biblically. And the only way we can do that is to know what this says, to learn about Jesus, to learn his word, to be able to have, to have the truth in us so that when we hear poop, <laughs> we can call it what it is and say, I don't think so, because I see it differently in the Bible, and so can we be those people who know how to filter what we hear? It was Karl Barth who said, as Christians in the world, we need to stand with a newspaper in one hand and our Bible in the other, and the Bible must interpret what is happening, not the other way around. The Bible has to be enabled to interpret the events that we see around us, We have to open our eyes. We can't be in an anesthetized sanctuary. So what should we do? Well, I take it as a gracious act of God that I heard an amazing speaker at the Global Leadership Summit just two days ago, three days ago, on Thursday. There was a gentleman named Brian Stevenson And he was one of the speakers at the Global Leadership Summit. He is the founder and CEO of the Equal Justice Initiative in the Deep South. He's an African-American man. He's a lawyer who goes into uh, jails and into uh, areas where people are being unjustly accused and incarcerated, where children are being uh, tried as adults. And he tries to bring justice. And this man had some thoughts for what we, we, the nation, we, the world can do. And so I bring his thoughts to you. The first thing that he said of what we can do to try to be part of ending injustice 
of racial inequality is that we need to get close. There has to be proximity between you and your neighbor. They can't be just people that are out there, that you need to get close to them. You need to know their names. You need to ask them, where do they live? We in this sanctuary are too anesthetized. We have to get to know each other. And when we get to know each other, we need to learn each other's stories. The second thing that he said we have to do is to change the narrative that shapes our thoughts. One of the things he said, which I think I learned it in school, but I'd completely forgotten it, In 1787, African Americans who were enslaved in America were only counted as three-fifths of a person, just so they could manipulate who could vote. And it was this argument between the North and the South because the North wanted to have more votes because they were actually anti-slavery, but the South wanted to have more votes, and so they wanted to have these people have a little bit, but not, but it's like crazy. So when we actually say there's a narrative in America that's been part of saying somebody has been three-fifths human since 1787, we had better know that there is a narrative here that has shaped us whether we know it or not. There are narratives that tell us things that are not true, but we believe them. Whether it's fake news or not, We have to be able to discern the narrative, and when we hear a false narrative, we must reshape that narrative, which causes what we think. You see, we are a city of storytellers. Brian Stevenson reminded us that the black population that went to Los Angeles and Detroit that they didn't come to these cities as immigrants leaving the Deep South, that they actually were refugees escaping terrorism of the Deep South. And that these are refugee populations within our midst that need to be sheltered and loved rather than exposed with us saying we didn't know. So we have to know. And we have to be willing to change the narrative. And the third thing that he said is that we have to stay hopeful. And as people of God, if there is something that we can do well, we know how to stay hopeful. Maybe those two guys on the road to Emmaus weren't quite hopeful, but they got really hopeful. We get to be people of hope. He said that injustice persists where there is hopelessness. And so there were many times that he wanted to just quit because the work was so hard. People, the work's going to be hard, but we have to stay hopeful And that hard work leads to the last thing that he said that we as a country, as a world need to do is that we need to be willing to do uncomfortable things. Christ went to some very uncomfortable places for us. Really messy. Sinners went there, nailed on a cross. So are we going to draw a boundary of where we'll go and where we won't go or are we going to go where he sends us? And are we going to stand where he says stand there? So we have to be willing to do uncomfortable things. And Bel Air, I want to add three more things that I think are for us, for Bel Air Church. What do we do? I'm not trying to marshal you to run out and be part of the next protest. I want to marshal us to be Christians, to stand where Jesus asked us to stand. And so the first thing that I want to ask you to do, us as a church to do, is to pray to ask God himself to open the scriptures to us so that our hearts burn, that we understand where we are in this world and what we're called to. 
And so would you pray? Would you get on your knees and put your head on the floor? That's the position that I was in last night at 1 a.m. Saying, God, what do you want me to say when I step into the pulpit at 8.30 tomorrow morning? We need to pray and ask God, and He may give us different responses of what you're supposed to do and what you're supposed to do and what you need to do. We need to do what He tells us. We don't have to get everybody on board to do the same thing. We need to be obedient to what He tells each one of us. We need to pray, and we need to repent. And I am going to look you in the eye for any of you African Americans that call this church your home. For any of you Latin Americans that call this church your home, any Asian Americans that call this church your home, any that used to be Muslim, God bless you, Wally, praise the Lord for you, but we need to stand in love. We need to repent and say, if this church has been too silent or too ambiguous or too cautious, for too long, I'm sorry. And I ask your forgiveness. And I ask for you to hold us accountable to doing better. And will you do that as this body of Christ? Can we say yes? And the last thing we need to do is we need to remember that we are going in love. We are going in His presence, and I have a story to tell you, and I promise I'll wrap up soon. One of our staff members here, JT, uh, John Taylor, any of you guys know JT, right? Give it up for JT. JT is our assistant director of youth ministries. He is the person that if you have children either in junior high or high school, they get the beautiful opportunity to meet JT. And JT told us this story in Staff Chapel just a couple weeks ago. JT used to work in the entertainment industry. He's just a really cool-looking guy, really awesome. He's just always got a smile on his face, really comfortable to be around. And he was telling us that he was driving home, and he saw on the sidewalk a kid, long-haired kid, walking down the street with a T-shirt about his, he said like if, it had, if he'd been wearing a sheet with this written on it, it couldn't have been larger print. And the T-shirt said... Jesus is a, and think about the worst word that you could possibly fit into that, fill in the blank, and that's what the t-shirt said, a specific word. And it was like, and JT was looking at this kid just walking down the street with this statement, Jesus is a, and JT was like, holy moly, I've got to talk to that kid. So he pulls over his car, and before he even knew what he was doing, he was getting out of his car. And I stopped him as he was telling the story. He told it to me again. And uh, I said, JT, what were you feeling right then? Were you feeling angry? Were you feeling offended? Did you feel like you had to, like, get out and, like, you know, give him one for Jesus? And, and he's like, he's like, no. He said, I, I knew that I was in God because I only felt sorrow for him. I was looking at a young man who was spiritually dead and my heart broke for him and that's why I stopped. I didn't stop to confront him. I stopped to speak a word of life to him and so JT gets out of his car and, and he walks up to this guy and this, so there's this man that pulled a car up and, and JT walks up and he goes, wow, what a t-shirt. 
well done. Like, you wanted my attention, you have it. I am standing in front of you. Like, wow, wow, well done. And then he goes, I wonder, do do you know him? Because, see, he's a friend of mine. And I, I just can't believe that you would wear something like that if you knew him, if he was a friend of yours. And he said, I'm the kind of guy, JT said, I'm the kind of guy that, man, I love my friends so much. And if I ever see a friend of mine who's being bullied or somebody saying mean things about him, I just have to step in and say, don't talk about my friend like that. Like, if you knew him, if you knew who he was, you could never talk about him like that. Do you, do you feel that way about your friends? And by now, this young man is completely disarmed. His countenance is completely changed. And he goes, yeah, dude, like I would do that for my friends. And JT said, I hope that you get to be friends with Jesus. That's who we get to be in this world. We get to be people that we don't have to slug it out. We don't have to hit people. We don't have to yell. We don't have to scream. We don't have to make our point. We don't have to make sure that we're understood. We have to love. It was Edmund Burke that said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good people to do nothing. So let's be good people. And better yet, let's be Christ's people. This is my prayer for us. Let me pray. Holy God, we thank you for your word that is a light unto our path. That God, we are not in a place of moral uncertitude. We are in a place of great certitude when we stand in you. And God, you were never ashamed of us, sinners, everyone. And so God, let us never be ashamed of the gospel. It is the power to save. And so help us take your gospel into this world. Help us be speakers and learners and doers and beers of who you have called us to be, Jesus. I ask it in your name, amen.